24. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 24 of Trade Secrets. We are excited to welcome Scott Goldman as our guest today. Uh, Scott is the co-founder and managing principal of Balm Revision, uh, the CEO of BD Capital, and the president of the Wampum Underground, which you guys will notice we've got a new set today. We are not in the cozy confines of Totem Realty downtown Pittsburgh. We are actually in the Wampum Underground. So Scott, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited about it. This is our first on-location shoot. Um, so for those of you who are watching versus just listening, you'll see in the background some pretty remarkable real estate. And I feel like that's a good place to jump in. So it is the middle of COVID in 2020. And uh, Bomb Revision had a lot of projects across the country. I think Scott was scared to death, just like I was, about what was going to happen with the real estate environment and tenants. But I called you and said, hey, I just got introduced to an underground mine, and I'll let you take it from there. Uh, your mindset and how you got from there to where we're at today. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we officially might have gone on our contract sometime in June or July and mm -hmm. closed in November of 2020. Uh, but I was thinking about this in context of us talking today, because for me, March 2020 was easily the scariest moment of my life. I had thought we had built a company up until that point and had a certain balance sheet and a net worth and all that stuff. And then overnight, I thought I was going bankrupt, right? Nobody was paying rent. You looked at the cost of interest. And there was easily four to six weeks there where I was convinced like this is how every real estate um, entrepreneur goes bankrupt. Like these events happen and you get wiped out. And and I had a lot of sort of existential crisis with that, which was, is this bad decision making by me? Did I fail? Is this more of a macro event? Right. Does it take everybody down? Um, you yeah. know, and then go ahead. Turn. In ballpark, like how many tenants and how many million square feet at that moment in time? Yeah, that moment we had... Um, God, let me think. I don't know, maybe a couple million square feet and hundreds and hundreds of tenants. Because we had these, we have these, as you know, we have these um, quasi-industrial flex projects that might have 50 or 60 tenants in them, right? And a lot of them are small businesses that are very much on a sort of monthly revenue and a monthly expenses. I mean, there aren't huge margins, just like a lot of small businesses we all know. Right. And so when you go two or three months without income and you've got payroll right. and you're sort of figuring out how to survive, the first thing you're not going to do is pay your rent for a lot of those guys, right? Because sure. that's not a real liability that has an immediate sort of consequence. They can stay in their space. And so that's what they all did. Everybody froze. Yeah, and you're, you're national scale at this point. You've got projects in multiple states. National scale, yeah. We had we had a payroll and, um, and interest on loans. And, you know, you only have so much reserves in these projects. I mean, no project can sustain zero income and full expense and debt. For extended periods of time, if it's not set up and capitalized <laughs> that way originally, right? And so that that was the first time in my life that I had ever like really froze, where I was just like, because our business is all about dealing with problems and making decisions and change and variables. But that was one that was like, wow, there there feels like no way out of this if nobody sort of responds. And then and then the PPP came through and things started to look better. And you and you know the deal was you negotiated these rent deferral deals and obviously the banks were supportive and so it, you know it seemed to be more of like let's figure out how to kind of work through this together it's interesting to me because when I was thinking about it that was March right of 2020 yep and then I think you might have called in May it was May yeah and then we were out here in June to meet with the current owners of this project and then on our contract very quickly later which is kind of funny right because we're 
I mean, we're real estate entrepreneurs and investors, so you know, our business is primarily finding opportunity to take an asset to make it worth more than it's worth when we acquire it, to partner with generally private investors or wealthy families to do that and receive our participation in those profits. And so, you know, when we choose a project, we, you know, we're making a bunch, we're speculating on how our investors are going to perceive it. Right. And, you know, generally we know if it's within our lane, right, it's stuff we've done before, this was a real big reach, right? We're going to buy a two and a half million square foot hole in the ground. <laughs> um, Just to re- re-say that, two and a half million square feet of exactly what you see behind us underground limestone mine yeah and like how do you even assess like you don't know what you don't know sort of thing right which is kind of a scary place to be in business how do you assess the physical space is it sufficient how do you sort of ascertain demand but I, i think when you called you said hey this is really interesting there's this facility i really see it as an underground real estate deal it's got operating business components to it um the space is incredibly cheap in a market like Pittsburgh, where it's hard to find, you know, large spaces that are functional, that are cost effective, there has to be a segment of demand and it just needs exposure and sort of hands on on management. And that felt compelling. And then we came here and we sort of saw it and kind of navigated it. But I'll tell you, there were probably three or four times in the deal where I wish we never got involved. <laughs> and as I said today, I'm very, fast forward to today. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled we got involved. We've done a I mean, you guys have done a great job. Uh, marketing and sort of raising the visibility of the asset. Our, the team here at Wampum's done an absolutely phenomenal job. Kelly, who, who really is the general manager of the facility, has uh, done an excellent job. We've got great tenants. It's, it's, been a, it's been really good. I mean, it's been a great, and it's wild. great so investment. We're three years later, and we're sitting in the first vacancy, effectively, in the whole three years. I mean, there's been little pockets that kind of switched from one tenant to the other, but this has not even been released yet for occupancy. Uh, next month in June, it will be. So 55,000 square feet out of two and a half million square feet for the first time in three years where you're actually out to the market. I mean, we've been marketing the space and bringing awareness, but really didn't have any space to lease anybody. So uh, it's pretty exciting to be here today. Um, so Bomb Revision is obviously the first company and where you spend what percentage of your time do you think today? Well, historically, it was 100% of my time. You know, right. Bomb Revision um, was the merger of a company called Revision Group that I started in October 2010 um, with a company called Bomb Development that our, our partner David Baum started um, um, long before. And, um, and we had started doing deals together and then ultimately merged them together. And the objective behind Bomb Revision was to do uh, really just thoughtful, creative real estate projects. You know, we kind of ebbed and flowed where we found opportunity. Uh, you know, we bought notes. Um, we started buying um, old industrial sort of manufacturing buildings that were no longer usable for manufacturing in Chicago. On, on, you know, in, in, in functionally sort of obsolete, right. functionally obsolete, and and converting them, and then that led us to different historic projects. David had had a, a long background in historic, that got us into the historic tax credit business. You know, u- utilizing creative ways to finance those projects and create value. Um, I got deep into that space because that's just sort of my nature. I got interested in it. it. It was a really niche space. It was. I went to the first historic tax card conference, I think, in 2016, and I looked around the room, and everyone was 40 years older than me and had gray hair, <laughs> and um, had and seemed pretty wealthy. So I thought there's something here <laughs> that we got to crack. Did they have all gray hair from the brain damage? Yeah, yeah. Like, I know they were all. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. For the yeah, historic deals tax are, credits are super, super complicated deals. They are, but they're fun. I mean, if you're 
I mean, it's a combination of legal, of design, because obviously there's an architectural component to it, of real estate investing and then sort of structured finance and all of it kind of working together in tax. And if you know it, um, I, I find it really interesting and it's a niche. And so we do one or two historic tax credit deals a year and that's kind of the, that really sustains the business because those, those deals generate, once you get them going, they generate very good fee income so they can keep the lights on and support your team. And then what they really are, they're really, you know, long-term holds for 30, 40, 50 years. The reason that a lot of wealth is created in that business is because the tax credits subsidize the deal to um, absorb the extraordinary cost of, of, of rehabilitating these older buildings and also lower the end rent to the end user. So in the beginning, you can really attract users and create culture and an environment in a community and really a soul to a project because you can get cool people at cheap rent to do interesting things. Sure. And then you can use that to subsidize the other user or to, to entice the other users We'll pay bigger rents to be as a part of that sort of community, no different than the cool restaurant that moves into the progressive neighborhood or whatever it is. And so, and so we've really seen that happen in these projects. And then when the tax credits burn off over five years or seven years, in the case of new market tax credits, as the owner, you own 100% of the project. You have no real hard equity in the project. You're starting to amortize down debt. If you execute it appropriately, rents are growing. And so you start to pick up that tail, and then over time you can refinance, you can redeploy those proceeds, you can end up with a portfolio of real estate that's cash flowing, that you're in a very good basis, that you can hold long term. And so that appealed to us. And so that's that's still a big part of our business plan. Um, but um, you know, through that, the, I mean, we're talking about BD Capital as well. I, I got involved in BD Capital really through Bomb Revision, one of our longtime investors, a East Coast-based family. Um, who had been a real estate investor um, and had a building supply company and invested with us for a long time and sold their building supply company that created their family office and supported their foundation efforts had been lending to residential fix and flippers. They actually started out in hard money, which is generally a term used to describe kind of lender of last resort situations. People who have credit issues or background issues that can't get traditional forms of financing. During that period, the industry evolved and we, what we, we're in what we call private lending now, which is really just operating with more common sense than a bank without the regulation or the bureaucracy, moving quicker in exchange, getting a higher rate, but being much more cooperative and easy to work with. And so... And like, what's the average like loan size or period of the loan? Like, yeah, um, yeah a- average, our average loan size is about a million bucks, um, but that's really a function of about half our portfolio's new construction. So we're lending about thirty to fifty million dollars a month. Um, so you know that's anywhere from I don't know twenty to forty deals, call okay. it. And you know our borrower is either a full-time fix and flipper, a custom home builder, who's doing a few projects on his own, and this is a resource for it, or maybe somebody who's got a full-time job, an IT consultant, and wants to build a real estate portfolio on the side, and is you know buying, fixing, and flipping, renting. I mean, there's all sorts of this whole industry has evolved, right? There's there's these pot, you know, there's podcasters and YouTubers who are sort of into this fix and flip business, and they've attracted a lot of people to the space. And as a result, there's, you know, there, there's been a lot of excitement around it and interest. And then separately, in the if you think about the housing market across the U.S., and I and I personally think the media's got this entirely wrong. I haven't been at all surprised what we're seeing in the housing market that it's it's been sustainable in a world of higher interest rates. 
because I think nobody's really focused on the supply issue. That there and is none. There's no supply, and the reason there's no supply is because when you think about the house that a young family wants to move into and how they finance it, they get a mortgage, they typically stretch to the maximum that they can afford, right? Which means their down payment is pretty much all their proceeds, so they don't have anything available for construction or to fix it. Everything that. they've saved in their Right, and so they're growing into in. it yep. over time. And so the end financing market requires that they buy the thing for 100% and they put 20% down. And it doesn't offer them a product to renovate and fix a house. Well, there's all this older product, you know, one-story ranch homes or older homes that are just outdated. The floor plans are outdated based on the way we live today. The kitchens and baths are outdated, whatever the circumstances may be, and they need to be updated. And so there is a distribution model that requires a middleman, no different than any other industry, to update the product for the end buyer. And that is our customer from BD Capital standpoint. That's who we finance. And how do these people find you? Like, if you're in that, how are your, the people that you're lending to, how are they coming to you? And what does that process look like? In addition to why aren't they just going to their bank for a line of credit? Like, where's the, like, Paige's point, how's the customer find out about BD Capital? And then why aren't they just asking PNC for a line of credit? Yeah, so, so the, the private lending industry is, is a relative commodity, right? So there, there's plenty of lenders out there. You can go online and search it. There's a lot of people in the space. We have a sales team of full-time loan officers that are originators, so they are calling on customers in the core markets that we're in. So we're pretty heavy in the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, um, Nashville, Florida, a little bit of the Carolinas, and some Georgia. So in those markets, our guys are, are you know, they, they own a market no different than any other sales guys, okay. and they're going out and meeting customers, and they're calling on them. Our, and they're trying to find builders who are doing flipping, like, Yep. Repeat customers. They're not, not just, just like robo-calling homeowners. Like, no, hey. no, no, that's not your customer. That's a low hit rate. We are, I mean, the guys who are doing this are doing, you know, some are doing 10 projects a year, some are doing two projects a year, but they're pretty easy to figure out who's doing it. I mean, all this stuff is public record in, right. our, in the industry. So you can, you can kind of get to a warm call. So that's, that's the sales guy's job and they do a great job of it. Um, from the borrower's perspective, why aren't they going to a bank? I mean, anyone who's ever borrowed from a bank, I think will tell you how cumbersome it is and it's not the bank's fault but they're in a regulated industry right so it's just it's just very very different and most of these guys don't have a lot of liquidity right so banks are really focused on I'm not focused on the asset of course I'm focused on the asset of how much I'm going to lend but what is your personal balance sheet how much cash do you have in the private lending space it's very much for it's very much about what is the value of the asset today what is it when it's complete what is the lender's basis going to be does this guy have the skill set and enough capital to manage the project through the course of the project? And so banks will limit how many projects they can do. Private lending allows them to do much more projects. And at the end of the day, projects don't really go bad because an experienced guy makes a bad decision, at least in our experience. Right. Projects go bad because someone gets lifestyle reasons, divorce, drugs, something else. It's really not, if it's underwritten appropriately, it's not a project it's issue. Not a project Where issue. do you sit in securitization of that? Is there typically, on a rehab project, is there a first mortgage on that property? So we're the first mortgage. So we're typically, You are the first we're mortgage. We're first mortgage. So we're first mortgage lender. We typically go up to about 85 to 90% of cost, 65 to 70% of as complete value. Okay. So basically, you're, they're acquiring the property with funds that you're providing. Yeah, and then, and then some of their own equity. Yeah. yeah. What's your typical loan term? Time? So typically, it's a 12-month term um, with a six-month extension. Um, and, you know, new construction takes today 14 months. 
fix and flip takes six to eight months. And <coughs> is this an in interest only issue? Interest only, um, only pay on the outstanding balance. So that's the other thing. The, the interest rate is really, is really not that relevant when you look at it for the total cost of the project. They're only paying on what they borrow. Our leverage is a little bit higher than a bank. It allows them to probably do it without an investor. So they keep 100% of the profits. And the ease of just getting the project done and complete is key to them, is really what they're focused on. We fund draws in 24 hours. I was going to mm -hmm. say, how so, quick do you fund? Yes, yeah, so we have a construction administration team fund draws in 24 to the most, 48 hours, you know. So that's another example. I mean, if you do go through a bank, that's a week. And so these guys are just, I mean, they're the guys who are really good at it, their strength is executing construction projects. Sure. Managing and executing construction projects, being organized, they're not... They don't. They don't want to be financial managers. Yeah. And so that's that's the place where we play, where there's a real value. And by their nature, they're small guys. Yeah. You know, they're not huge risk guys. They they have an idea. They know they've justified. This is what the property is going to be worth when I finish with it. This is the takeout. The takeout has his spread on it, so you should feel really secure about that. Yep. Mm -hmm. The thing that's interesting to me, though, is is a borrower. I mean, obviously, we own. You know, as a borrower, real estate assets is what's happening in this industry in this what so wall street calls it the residential transition lending industry rtl okay. so that's the moniker and they've they've validated this industry by packaging these loans and putting them into securitizations that companies buy we have an insurance company of a large private equity firm that's a big investor of ours and buys a lot of our paper too um, or invest alongside us in that paper and so the insurance companies like it and what you're seeing is that this space is largely tracking what happened in the commercial real estate industry. If you think about commercial real estate 15 years ago, your only lender was a regional bank or a life insurance company. There weren't these debt funds. Right. When I got into the business in 2002, there weren't debt funds that existed the way they do today where, you know, every large loan is a package of debt funds. You know, Blackstone is lending to Starwood and Starwood's lending to Blackstone and Walden Street and all those spaces, right? So... Um, and then there's a bunch of other groups. And then and, and so these lenders have been created in the commercial real estate industry, and they might be doing a CMBS execution, a CLO execution. They might have an insurance company. They might have a fund, a debt fund, the whole thing. The RTL space is largely starting to track that. Okay. How, how do they package that with such a short issue? They, they, so, yeah, it's a good question. So they package it, and they'll have like a two- or three-year sort of origination window to keep churning. Okay. And then after that, a payoff, a payoff period. And interest rates obviously have moved a lot in the last 12 months, plus or minus 200 basis points. So if the banks, and we just got um, an offer, a term sheet on a commercial deal at 6.16%, where's your money trading today? 10 to 12% generally, and it's a function of experience and risk and credit from the borrower. But yeah, okay. but that hasn't, what's interesting about that is that hasn't really changed over the last year. So, so it's stayed steady at the 10 to mm -hmm. 12, even though the common, like the common borrower's rate has changed. By right. It, well, and even though our borrowing rate has changed, right? Because we, yeah, you, you know, we're a bank, right? So we have, at, or effectively a bank conceptually, not legally, right? But we're, we have assets, which are the notes and loans we make, and we have liabilities, which we borrow against those mm -hmm. assets. So sure. we have lines of credit and credit facilities. So our cost of capital went up significantly. And so our interest margin went down, which, shrunk. Is, which is the business. Um, but I, I think that's more of a function of the proliferation of the industry that I talked about, where there's so much demand for the end product for the loans that the end buyer of the loan, the insurance company, the pension fund, 
the private credit manager that needs the exposure. I mean, there's so much cash, despite all the things we talk about in the United States, at the end of the day, in dollar-denominated assets, that needs to go somewhere. You know, like, it, like if you just think about pension funds and 401k plans, like 20 years ago, everybody didn't contribute to a 401k or companies didn't even have that, right? Now, how, I'm curious, I've never seen these numbers, I've been meaning to Google it, how much each month is deposited in a 401ks from a company contribution just nationally, right? That's like a law that's always buying equities every single month, no matter what. And how is that different than it was 20 years ago? And I think a lot of that money has proliferated into all these asset classes, which is why we've seen real estate be an accepted asset class, which is why we've seen commercial real estate at a certain level. You know, what's interesting about wampum, like to take it back to wampum, is this is an asset that an institution can't buy today. And that's largely been our career, right, is taking non-institutionalized assets improving them and getting them to a place where they can be bought by a larger pool of end buyers like institutions. And, you know, that's a large part of the industry, which has been this global cash flow in real estate. And so today, no one's going to come in and buy a two and a half million square foot mine with, you know, seven, called seven hundred five to 700,000 square feet of warehouses. There's a third party logistics business that's part of this business. And then there's a vehicle storage business where we store boats and RVs and cars um, for customers on a one-off basis, we have right. what three thousand different customers that go into a million square feet of vacant mine space, and our business plan was to slowly expand the vacant space into built-out lease space like this over time. Sure. And if you look at ten years from now, let's say it becomes one and a half million square feet of built-out space and five hundred square feet or of raw space or something like that, then it's a very different asset, and it's got long-term leases. And it appeals to a very different buyer. Uh, so I'm curious about the, your perception that it isn't an institutional buyer, because at the end of the day, the million and a half square feet that's boats and RVs, like you said, 3,000 customers plus or minus, effectively that's self-storage, right? And self-storage is a booming institutional asset class. So why do you think the institutional world looks at this differently, or is it just the unknown? Like, it was unknown to you and it's unknown to them. I think, I mean, there are, there, you know, Blackstone's bought some, some underground facilities. Um, the Heinz, or is it the Heinz family, right? Or owns, uh, or not the Heinz the family, Hunt. the Hunt family, right? Thank you. Who owns the uh, Kansas City mine that um, is really the most direct. That's Subtropolis. Yeah. yeah, Subtropolis. That's really the most direct comp for this. It's much larger, but it's a pretty good comp. So there's certainly acceptance of the asset. I think the issue is, you know, we operate the storage business. Right. right, And so we have an operating team here and we operate the logistics business. If we had third-party operators like a self-storage asset, you know, that's like public storage or extra space or one of the national Guardian operators. Or whatever. Yeah, or Guardian, whoever it is, yeah. that's very different, right? And so I think until there's really a more standardized, you know, what, what do private equity firms or institutional capital primarily do is that they, they solve the capital side of the equation they're really not they the operator. They don't want to be in the operations seat, right? But they want, they want the perfect fit to go into their box. This yeah. might be an almost fit, but it's got some sharper edges on it. So it's not going to fit into that straight public storage kind of scenario. Sure. And there's too many of those other things that fit that. So it's just they don't feel like getting it through the board. So it's you, interesting. We kind of like glossed over it, but effectively what you're saying is why your interest rates at BD haven't changed versus the you know common interest rates are changing is because if you raised your rates, there's so much capital out there that's willing to lend that 
you wouldn't have any business. Is, yeah, we'd be uncompetitive like, at that point. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. in. So you would take you take a lower margin. Exactly. Because if you're not in order to, to keep your your profit margins decrease, in order to keep your rates stable, so that you don't lose those opportunities to other and focus on increasing yeah. the volume. Yeah, and you else. can make it up in scale, right? Yeah. So you could do more business, and you can make it up in volume. Yeah, I mean th- that's the great thing about the capital business or the lending business; it's scalable. Real estate's a great business too; it's just not scalable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> not it, quickly. Anyway. I have yeah. a question going back, and this would really be applicable to last year. You had an exponential increase in the cost of building products. How did that affect the portfolio of which whatever you had deployed there? Because no one anticipated that. Yeah, that, that's a great example of why working with a private lender is different than working with a bank. So, you know, obviously we all saw that and we had a lot of loan modifications and we're not in the business of typically just allowing loan modifications for any reason. Mm-hmm. But that was a scenario where it was like, hey, this isn't these guys fault. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't fail to execute. They need more and we all want to see the project finished. So the way we dealt with it is we increased the loans yeah. and we did it very, very quickly and we were reasonable. And that is why there's a lot of customer loyalty. Uh, the most interesting about BD Capital is there's never been a customer that has not been a repeat customer who wanted to be a repeat customer. It's only the customers that, you know, that the, that the company said, this isn't the right fit. Right uh-huh. And so I think that talks a lot about the strength of having a capital, a lender. I mean, we're not a partner, we're a lender, but having a lender that gets what you do for a living and supports it. And probably like all industries, there's probably an opportunity to earn a higher cost of capital for having some common sense and some human decency and to not treat people like they're just lines on a tape or whatever right. and understand Well, your you're customer. going back to what a lender used to be. A lender used to be a partner and they would help you grow and they knew when something was, you know, going wrong in an industry or with you particularly or, you know, something that you were doing and they worked with you. You're not... Uh, right. There's your, your commodity now. It's and you think like about the real estate number. business, right? I mean, the, you, the, these regional lenders or these small local banks, they financed owner-occupied real estate. They financed yeah. business growth. They did all that stuff. They're now all, at, I guess, a threat of being marginalized for a bunch of different reasons. I'd argue a lot more of it's government regulation than the public really appreciates. The cost of running a bank is impossible with their regulatory cost and, the, and so forth. And as a result, that's what really drove consolidation. And, you know, now as a result of what's going on in the world and the capital markets, you're going to see more and more consolidation. And it's the loser is going to be the end users in the communities, the local small businesses. Because they're going to have a higher cost of capital from private credit who is going to fill that gap. There's a ton of talk in the hedge fund world, in the family office world, in the institutional investor world about the private credit space and the need for it among all industries. Obviously, equipment finance, small business funding, the, the whole thing. It's a higher cost of capital to the user by providing relationships, common sense, all that role. But that, so Silicon Valley failing, Republic failing, you know, these things are good news for BD Capital at the end of the day. I mean, it's it's maybe not a great way to look at it, but it effectively, you're saying the private capital market. There's such an amount of it out there, not just BD Capital, obviously all your competitors, that it's going to fill the gap. The, the way I think about it is, um, at the end of the day, there's got to be stability in the economy and demand for the end product for BD Capital's risk and exposure. And so you don't want too much instability. Okay. But there was a period of time when interest rates were incredibly low, 
and there was so much demand for these, these mortgages that two guys in a room could purport to be lenders, have a phone, <coughs> excuse me, make loans and sell the next day. The market was so liquid. That was not good for BD Capital or for any lender with a balance sheet and a long-term view because that created what I would consider to be a lot of actors in the space who did some things that were not rational and aggressive and all they cared about was getting the origination and selling off the loan and had no connection to the asset or, or the risk they were taking. But the and, other extreme of the opposite of the bank, the, right. the bad apple. And so, yeah, so the, the instability in the banking industry is generally good in the constriction for the private lending market to the extent it doesn't create more macro issues in the economy that obviously hit that point of instability that's bad for all of us. Right. So like that, that delicate threshold or that tension, I guess, scares me a little bit, you know, but what I also love about the product that BD Capital was doing is like the duration of it is so short, it's one year. We're not making, I mean, this wampum, when we set up wampum, this was a 10 year investment when we raised the capital from the investors. That's what we said. Don't, don't get involved in this deal. Don't if you, call if, us uh, in 10 months. Yeah, like this is our goal. <laughs> It's going to be a 10-year deal. We really saw this as like a Warren Buffett deal is value investing, right? Like our downside is protected. We've got really good internal organic cash flow growth. We have a lot of optionality. We can reinvest the capital into the facility. We can build stronger barriers to entry. We can build a stronger asset. Like that was the investment, right? And that was a long duration. And we put long-term fixed rate debt on the deal. And we set up the business that way. And we're not, we don't, we're not worried about what's going on in the capital markets there, right. right? Like this deal is set up to own forever and it's capitalized appropriately in the whole thing. BD Capital, by contrast, we, we got, we're one year duration, right? So we're looking 12 months out and we're saying, okay, how are we managing the balance sheet? How are we managing assets and liabilities for that period of time? How are we managing the sort of deals we lend to? What we keep on the balance sheet, what we sell off? And we constantly reevaluate that every few months. And, so, and are, go the, ahead, are the investments um, like case specific, or is it like a fund that then you pull from? And like, what does your reporting look like to those investors? Is that kind of like effectively the oversight that you operate under? Yeah, we have. So we have um, private individual investors who are part of really the company um, that would like reflect sort of like a fund like structure. Um, but we, I mean, just like any financial institution, we have. Um, we have, you know, financial reporting that, you know, we do pretty regularly and we, we run it like it's, I wouldn't say a bank, but we run it in a very professional way, right? And we have outside accountants, we don't do audited, but we do reviewed financials and all of that. And we do our regular reporting. And then we have institutional investors who invest alongside us, um, like insurance companies that I mentioned. And that, that tends to be more specific to the pools of loans that you do at any given time. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, that has a sort of different level and threshold of reporting. But I find it to be a really fun business coming from the real estate business because it's, it's macro and micro at the same time, right? It's macro in terms of capital markets, flows of capital, cost of capital, all that. Then it's super micro, which is this guy's buying this deal on 123 Main Street. What are the comps in the market? What is the value of the asset? What's his business plan? What's his experience? Can he execute it? You make that decision and... In literally two minutes every day on investment committee, and then we send out term sheet and close two weeks later. Right? So that leads right into one of the questions <laughs> I had, which is the valuation. You're not relying on appraisals? We are relying, we, we get appraisals. Okay. Appraisals are a standard of the industry. They're required 
for sort of the capitalization of the loans. But that's that not happening concerned. in two weeks. It is. So we talk get, to us about that, because man, appraisals. You get yeah the appraiser. I mean, you have a you have an appraiser. You have different appraisers you work with in each market, a pool of them, okay. and they can do that quickly. We do not rely. We rely on the appraisals as a check on our own estimate of value. We do not rely on it as the determination of value. Who, we do that internally. Who we have provides a, the appraiser? Is this an appraisal that's given with the loan application, or are you? No, no, we hi, we hire the appraiser. You're ordering it. Once the loan application signed, or the really a term sheet signed, the appraiser's ordered. 15 minutes later, immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and I also think that's different in a bank. In a bank, I think that term sheet goes to someone else internally who runs in a, and it goes to a appraisal management company and yeah. then it comes back and it's reviewed and the whole thing where we've already done our own comps. We have our own, we've already validated what we believe the value to be. The appraisal is just a, just a checkpoint. Okay. So cradle to grave, someone comes to you with a project, how long does it take for them to actually get the first, the, the, get the commitment? Well, the commit the 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 term sheet, which is like our sort of this is the loan under this is the loan we're willing to provide, and as long as everything checks out, yeah, is is either the same day or the next day. The closing two weeks, two weeks, which is it's remarkable, mind-boggling, mind-boggling, yeah, mind-boggling, and just the streamlined bureaucracy of it's got to go through this guy and this guy and this guy and taking forever, and the Department of Redundancy Department and just goes on forever. (laughs) Well, the irony to me is that. In half of my life, I am a borrower and an operator, right. beholden to the bureaucracy and challenge of just managing lenders in general, which I get. And then the other half of my life, I am you a lender, the lender, eliminating the bureaucracy <laughs> but that's to an you, end borrower, right? Yeah, that's yeah. how you understand the value of the product. Yeah. That's how you understand that this is, this is the premium I'm going to get out of this. And, and the value of the relationship and the value of listening to somebody and understanding, you know, their business plan and, and very quickly making a decision about it. Yeah. So you, you did talk a little bit um, about, you know, how you got involved, like how you got to where you are today. But where did this all start? Like, what is your background in? Like, how did you what was your background that led to the bright idea? Like, oh, there's a gap here. There's a need for this transitional lending. A private bank could do things that, <coughs> you know, larger banking institutions can't. Like, what, but where did that start? Yeah, I don't, I don't get much credit for, like, the industry or the gap in the space. That really came from, I, I moved um, from Chicago to Nashville um, in, during COVID. We had planned to move the summer after COVID. We had sold our house in December of 2019. We had moved into a high-rise in downtown Chicago to let my kids finish school for that semester. And we were going to move in July. And then COVID hit and they locked down the building. And so we left, which we thought was for two weeks. That obviously ended up being forever. And, um, and we ended up uh, moving to Nashville, uh, really moving in our house that May of 2020. And then um, a deal, a loan for my, my partner in the capital business um, was originated in Nashville. He asked me to go look as um, it's just my opinion like a gut check yeah gut check and I had no experience in, in this business I didn't really I didn't know about this space at all and I went to go look at this loan and met the borrower and looked at the project and I thought wow this is a great opportunity and the gentleman who had originated the loan who's now um, you know one of our top guys um, had moved to Nashville a year and a half prior and had been in the business of trying to originate these loans and put them together for end lenders, but didn't have his own balance sheet and didn't have the business. 
And so after that, I had coffee with him, just like I would with anybody. I'm a curious person and was curious about the business. I said, how much of this business is there to do? And he said, oh, there's a, I get hundreds of millions of dollars. And so then my next step was to look at um, people in the space who were publicly traded and just pull their filings and understand the business model. So I did that. And then a week later, I just thought I was on a run and I was thinking to myself, you know what, my partner, they've got the back office, they've got the business, they've got the experience. I think I understand the opportunity more broadly. This really makes a lot of sense to me, given what I've seen in the commercial real estate industry and the commercial real estate lending industry as a borrower with the proliferation of debt funds and private credit. And I thought there's got to be the same opportunity in this space. And so then we ventured together and we formed an affiliate of BD Capital in the Southeast um, to focus on Nashville, Florida, and the Carolinas and grow the business and um, hired a team and I officed with that team and I was not active in the day-to-day business really at all and um, it grew and we brought in institutional capital things changed and the business evolved and there was clearly a good match at the time with my passion my skill set my experience and where the business needed to go and so I then got more actively involved and that was I don't know that happened within the last six months or so and that that's and that's been obviously I'm passionate about it. It's been a blast. I mean, I love it. It's I actually never thought I would enjoy um, being involved in an organization with with a lot of people because I never saw myself as as a good manager. I saw myself as more of a project person, deal guy, kind of sole entrepreneur, like figure it out, sort of like with Wampum. Mm-hmm. Kevin drops this deal in our lap. <laughs> we put it under contract. Me and my partner later, Alan right? in this deal. Yeah, we partner. We figure it out. We figure out how to diligence it. We figure out how to underwrite it. Then we figure out, oh my, like how is our, how are our investors going to perceive it? And I always really loved that sense of like independence and entrepreneurship, and thought that an operating business with scale wouldn't necessarily appeal to me. But this lending business is kind of a unique derivative of a lot of my experience in the industry and space and I'm also kind of a deal junkie and you get to see deals every day <laughs> so like Lots the combination of, of those every things, day yeah yeah and so the combination of those things seem to be um and look life is like this journey right that none of us it's never a linear line and these stories like I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think it's always funny when somebody tells their story in a way that to the listener makes it appear so linear Oh, I started here and then I did this and then I did this and life just went in this like upward chart up into the right, which anyone who's ever been involved in anything knows is not at all accurate, but especially business because everyone who's sold a company needs that like a year before they, they, they had days where they thought it was just even going to exist months from now. Right. Sure. And so it hasn't been linear for me either, but I've just always, I guess, done a good job of sort of following what I think to be the natural energy of my path. And it just, led me here and so I'm following that now and that's it yeah and obviously we've done a lot of work together and I think you're one of the best deal guys I've ever been at, oh, at the you. table with um, your ability to figure these things out and in short order um, when did you like you obviously have a good gut instinct but when when did your gut tell you you were going to be an entrepreneur that, that I think I knew at a pretty young age so I, I started um I started, I, I kind of grew up in a pretty chaotic household, so I probably have like a, like, I don't know that I'm better at dealing with stress, but I probably am naturally used to like a higher level of stress. Sure. And so my first job was caddying in, um, 
just caddying at a local country club. I think it's one of the best first jobs you can. It have. is the best first job, and and if if it was socially acceptable, I'd probably go carry bags on Saturday and Sunday right now, today as a caddy, because I loved it. I I loved what I loved being on the course and being outside, but I love listening to the talk, and and I've thought a lot about this. I actually think that that job absolutely changed my life. I think for me, I grew up with two parents who were not in business at all. My dad was a had a private psychotherapy practice and really was a hippie. And, um, and, and, and we're probably much more similar than I appreciated then as I get older, but we were very, very different then. And, um, and so I was very interested in business and there was, there was no like template or thing for me to follow. And I didn't really grow up in a community where like our neighbors, I don't know that there were a lot of entrepreneurs, but when I carried a golf bag and I'm 14 years old and I'm on this course, listening to these guys talk, it demystified wealth for me and it demystified success. And it really, um, which I think is like so important for young people, it really showed me like what's available in the world. Like it completely removed any mental obstacle that that was not accessible to me. That's and so awesome. I, that's fantastic. That is awesome. Yeah, and I think that is the best job for that reason, right? And and you also kind of learn you kind of learn how to interact at that level. That if you didn't grow up in a family that was in business, that you wouldn't know. Right, like by just listening the way people talk to each other and kind of relate, and you and get forced to interact with them very quickly in a way that's acceptable. Like you can't not quickly adapt to the way that they're talking to each other. But you also, have a job. I think, realize that you know outside of the business terms they're using, like their everyday people, like you said, it it makes it more tangible the more totally. you are around and conversing with people like that, like. They started just where you were, you know. They they had a first job once too, and now they're there. It actually um, breaks my heart here in Western Pennsylvania. The caddy program is not proliferate because the hills. There's just too much topography, so golf oh, carts are much more widely used here in Western PA than they are. Like I grew up in Ohio, and courses are flat, and everybody caddied. Yeah. Every country club had a caddy program, but caddy programs here are um, not the common, which is disappointing because I've got three young boys and I would love for them to be caddying but it's like where There's yeah just no, I did it I did it for six years and Paige should point <laughs> about demystifying it or learning like just learn how to relate I think the other thing that I don't think I realized at the time but I obviously realize now upon reflection is that it also showed from my perspective that they saw me as someone that was acceptable in some form like I didn't I never felt like a service provider in that job I felt like there's some form of like the, like that those guys would like if, if you did a good job, those guys were usually pretty encouraging, right? And and supportive, like hey, you did a great job, you know, you're gonna go places or things like that, right? And so all of a sudden you get this this sort of reinforcement, which which helps that belief confidence. and yeah, and that confidence of removing that obstacle. And so for me, I knew then and back to like being an entrepreneur, I knew then that like. I, I don't know. I wanted to be like those guys. I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew that. And then um, I started in finance, but real estate really appealed to me because there's actually a guy, and I've told this story many times, but there's a gentleman named Jimmy Klutznik, who's a very famous Chicago name. His father um, was the founder of a company called Urban Properties that built malls across the country, which was very prolific in the 80s and really well known. And I think his father was actually Secretary of Commerce under Kennedy or had some very prominent role. Um, But Jimmy was a very um, well-known Chicago developer. And I started out working at a bank, and then I went to go work for a sort of mezzanine private equity fund. 
And the, the only reason they let me be in the room for this meeting was because Jimmy's partner, a guy named Maury Fisher, I played basketball with, um, and I knew him, and so they let me sit in on the meeting. And Jimmy was coming to meet with my boss to raise money for a deal he was developing in Evanston near Northwestern University. And he was building a uh, mixed-use property with uh, retail on the ground floor and apartments and the whole thing. And he came in and he talked about the deal, and I didn't know really anything about real estate at this point at all. We talked about the deal and he described zoning and the construction and the leasing and the cost and the financing and all the variables. And when he left the room, I thought to myself, I want to be that guy. Like that sounds so interesting. And he was such a warm, nice, smart guy who kind of understood all these different things. And I just thought, man, that what a cool business that you get to be involved in all aspects of that. And so then the only guy I knew who was a developer was a guy who I worked out with who'd built shopping centers, who was a pretty good guy, this guy named Peter Borzak, who became one of my best friends and mentors and was really responsible for the entire course of my life after that point. And I said to him, hey, I want to be a developer. How do I do that? <laughs> and he took me to lunch and he said, we're actually looking for like an acquisitions guy. I see all this institutional money coming into real estate. Um, maybe you could come work with us. And we did that, and that was a very small shopping center development company at that time. And we just figured it out. We figured out how to raise institutional money. We ended up getting a state pension fund as our partner and finding deals. And we did that together, and he really mentored me, and I really ran that program, and I had all the time in the world to work lots of hours and loved it and was passionate about it, and that sort of set the course. And that was really a very entrepreneurial job in a company, but... It didn't feel like a company. I never, I felt like an entrepreneur then, just working with Peter and learning from him. Sure. And then ultimately, um, I left that to go out on my own only because I just wanted to focus on kind of a different product and kind of wanted to build something. And that company has become a really prominent owner and operator of retail centers to Peter's credit and became much larger and more institutional. And so, and then I just went on my own and figured it out again. And, you know, and, that, and it's been the course. And just like Wampum, like we talked about, you know, this deal came up and Alan and I got together and put two heads together and have similar kind of entrepreneurial mindsets and just figured it out. Right? Yeah, I feel like I've got a good sense of what your trade secret is, but we always end with the trade secret. Stay active, play uh, sports, and have conversations <laughs> with people. Talk to people yeah. and play sports. Um, but before we get to your trade secret, we obviously did Irish coffee today. Michael, thanks so much. Yes, yeah. It's Irish a little coffee. chilly in here, so the coffee chilly. didn't stay warm for very long. Mm -hmm. But the yeah. whipped cream is exquisite, Michael. I'm yes. very impressed with the uh, the love you put into that. You don't get to do your Vanna White with the bottle, but the, There's the coffee no bottle. was fantastic. But this is a traditional Irish coffee. A um, little sugar on the bottom, black coffee. Use Jameson's Irish whiskey, but you can use any different kind. National and Whiskey Day the, today? It's National Whiskey Day today. And yeah. we started filming at 10.30 in the morning, so <laughs> yes. we felt like bourbon on the road. We thought a bottle of bourbon was a little aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Wish the, wish the coffee had stayed a little bit warmer, but uh, very tasty. But thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Scott, hot seat. What's your trade secret? A tra my, my trade secret, I don't know. I don't think it's... I wouldn't classify it as a trade secret, but my... Like, my... What, what allows me to do what I do, I guess, um, for a living is lack of judgment, lots of curiosity, and, like, really being open to listening, right? Like, no, like, firm commitment or attachment 
to anything as being certain. And whether that's like meeting with someone or a situation or a deal, like there's no certainty. Like it's all different. It's not as perfectly described. You know, Wampum, we have a team here. There are management. There's there's people. And it's never as obvious or specific as it seems. There's always room around the edges. And so approaching those situations that way with that disposition, that is like, and that is everything for me. Deals, relationships, my wife, my kids, work partners, the whole thing. Yeah, I was going to say your uh, zest of curiosity is palatable. Like you can, it throughout just this 45 minutes, obviously we've talked a bunch previously, but I've learned a lot more about anytime you saw something that was not a shiny new object, it was just something different that you didn't understand. You went and figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty incredible. So we really have appreciated having you here. And thanks for thanks, hosting at Wampum. And uh, good thanks luck for having me. the yeah. continued growth, man. Thanks, guys. All right. It's been great. Thanks. That's, that's a wrap. Thank you. Episode 24 in the books.